Welcome to Imagination Redeemed. I'm Brian Brown, the Executive Director of the Anselm Society and the host of this podcast. With this episode, we begin a turn from discussing the role of space, the material world, in helping us to know God and live as his people, to discussing time and its role in the same purpose. In our next episode, we will hear Jane Charles' in-depth explanation of what time is, how inaccurately we tend to think of it, how badly we tend to make use of it as a result, and how it can help us find meaning and purpose in the face of the hardships and joys of life in a time-bound world. But first, I wanted to share this bonus episode with you. It's a recording of an Ascension Day sermon from a few weeks ago given by Father Chris Stroop, pastor at Holy Trinity Anglican Church, the church which founded the Anselm Society years ago. At its best, historically, I find that the Protestant imagination in particular has been deeply concerned with the ascension of Christ into heaven at the end of the Gospels because it puts us in what theologians call the already and the not yet, a time in which believers have been brought back into communion with God and yet still find themselves living here amidst sin and suffering, including our own. When I heard the sermon, I thought it beautifully answered some crucial questions about the time in which we live and how we are supposed to relate to it. While the sermon also raised more complicated questions about the nature of reality itself in the context of time. After all, God is eternal, so he does not experience this already and not yet time in the same way that we do. So what's going on there? I got permission from Father Chris to share this recording with you, and I hope you find it as moving as I did. So as you may have gathered from our readings, today is Ascension Sunday. So Ascension Day was a few days ago, and today is the day we mark in the church calendar Jesus's ascension to heaven. And so we'll be talking a little bit more about what that means for us. But being post-resurrection Christians mean that we live in what feels like a perpetual state of unconsummated glory. That we're waiting for Christ's return. We're waiting for our own redemption, for Christ to come in his fullness. Now, for some of us, we may have confidence in how this story will end, that there is hope. But every week, there's some new issue or some new tragedy with the power to shake our faith. And for others of us, we may not be so sure about how things are going to end up in the end. Our wounds are deep, and they make it hard to trust. And the scars we carry still hurt. Every new revelation of darkness, which we've seen so many in the recent weeks, threatens our hope in a good God. Now, add on to this that we're in a constant state of juggling these deep sorrows with the regular joys of life. We juggle joy and lament, sorrow and hope. At one moment, we're basking in God's goodness in the resurrection redemption, and the next, we're devastated by the unredeemed brokenness that plagues our world. Frederick Buechner helps us put this into words with his comment on tears. He writes, you never know what may cause them. The sight of the Atlantic Ocean can do it, or a piece of music, or a face you've never seen before, or a pair of somebody's old shoes. The high school basketball team running onto the gym floor at the start of the game, you can never be sure. But of this, you can be sure. Whenever you find tears in your eyes, especially unexpected tears, 
it is well to pay close, the closest attention. They are not only telling you something about the secret of who you are, but more often than not, God is speaking to you through them of the mystery of where you have come from and is summing you to where you are going. This is what we can notice when we start to see those tears well up. Whether they actually come out in physical tears or not, we feel that joy on the one hand and that sorrow on the other. We face the good and the bad, health and brokenness. But over the last few weeks, this juxtaposition has been thrown in our faces in a way that really stings. It's like that feeling when school gets out for summer and you start to head to the pool for the first time, it just opens up. And no matter how long it's been since you jumped in the pool, you know that feeling. You're anticipating the joy, the laughter with friends, and the soul-refreshing power of a cool pool, pool on a lazy summer day. And then you jump in, and you open your eyes to look around and bask in your summer glory and quickly realize how much chlorine is in the pool. Now, you're no chemist, but at that moment, you become very well aware of the elements or the properties of element number 17 on the atomic periodic table that it has an irritating effect to your eyes and its irritating properties linger. It stings. In this Easter season, we've celebrated the resurrection. We've come together to rejoice. We've rung our bells at Christ's return. We've celebrated together the confirmation as we had Bishop Ken here a few weeks ago, those people who have come and stand publicly to proclaim their faith among us. And we have joined with them in remembering our own proclamation. And this weekend and the last weekend, we've been celebrating graduations together. Those who've completed this season of high school and college and marking a passing into a new season of life. And over the last two weeks, we've mourned. We've mourned a racist rampage at a grocery store, a shooting in a church, a shooting in a McDonald's, and in our 11th mass murder of the year, a shooting at an elementary school. And this week, we've also lamented the years of abuse by pastors and church leaders that's coming to new light. And we're saddened and justly angered at those who have had the power to help the vulnerable and instead left sin and darkness. It stings. It's hard to stand up here as a pastor today and proclaim the gospel, the good news, with all of this going on. But the gospel that we claim must speak to both of these realities, the joy and the sorrow. And if it doesn't, then I want no part of it, and you shouldn't either. But I am here today standing to tell you that it does speak to this. The good news of our faith tells us that the risen and ascended Jesus is now near the Father, where he is at work, restoring all things to the goodness that they were meant for. And from there, he is interceding for us. And we learn about this. We understand this in a special way from understanding the ascension. As I said, today is Ascension Sunday, and I think it's a fitting day to remember what Christ is doing. And so in order to lean into this gospel reality, it's important that we get a better grasp on what it means that Jesus has ascended. 
Now, most Christians have a pretty good grasp on the importance of Christmas, the incarnation, right? Jesus coming to earth. And we have a pretty good grasp on the centrality of Easter. Jesus has risen from the dead and conquered death. And I would assume quite a few of us have a pretty good understanding of what Pentecost means, which will mark next week, the giving of the Holy Spirit. But I would venture to say that we don't quite have as strong of an understanding of, what, of the ascension and its importance. So I was asking my kids this question on the way to church, and I'll ask you this now. What do you think Jesus is doing right now? Hanging out, right? Talking to Peter for all eternity, saying, Peter, remember who I am and what you did. Right? Every week we recite the creed that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And so sometimes we wonder, well, what's he doing there? I don't know if you've wondered that. I have. Maybe he's just in heaven waiting to catch our prayers, right? If you listen to Christian music on the radio, this is often the image of Jesus we get, right? That he's just sitting there waiting for our prayers to come to him. Or maybe we think of the ascension as Jesus' big retirement party. That he's, he's done all the work, right? He's finished, he's completed the resurrection, and now he's up in heaven just hanging out, enjoying Mai Tais at the beach. That he's enjoying it there, and he's just basking in all of our worship of him. Or maybe we see it as Jesus' divine rest time, right? If you have kids who are toddlers and it's coming to that end where they don't do those rest times anymore, you know how precious those moments are. That Jesus is just hanging out, waiting to return. That he's just sitting around. I'm going to be judging the world pretty soon, but right now I just get to hang out. But in the next few minutes, I want to talk about these aspects of the ascension Three aspects that are important for our understanding how it applies to our joys and sorrows in our world today. The first is the theology of the ascension. The second is its meaning. And the third is the implications for us. So first, the theology of the ascension. So we all know the basic gist of the story, right? We heard it read aloud. After the resurrection, Jesus teaches his disciples, and then he returns to heaven. We heard in our passages today from Luke and Acts, and the disciples are watching him as he goes up into the clouds. Now, a little aside, whenever we see clouds in these cases, it's often a symbol of God's presence. You see the cloud come down in the dove um, when Jesus is baptized. But there's much more to the ascension than this. And so in good elementary school fashion, we need to put on our thinking caps because it can get a little deep. I want us to pause for a moment and think about four important theological aspects of the ascension that apply to our lives today. The first one is often the most complicated, but often the one we don't think about. Jesus brings humanity to the Trinity in the ascension. The second person of the Trinity existed prior to Jesus's incarnation, prior to his birth. But when Jesus becomes human and then returns to heaven, he brings humanity with him for all eternity. Humanity is existing with God and as God on our behalf. Now, there's some mystery here. I can't quite explain it all. Uh, Many, many people have tried to, but I don't know that I could do any better. 
But I think Augustine, the fifth century theologian, explains it well in his sermon on Ascension Day. Now, just pause for a minute. A fifth century theologian is giving sermons about Ascension Day. And this is the heritage and the tradition that we introduce ourselves and we bring ourselves together and that we stand in line with those Christians who are hearing Ascension Day sermons from thousands of years ago. But Augustine says, he says, just as you are a human being, our soul and body, so the Lord Christ is word, soul, and body. The word did not depart from the Father. He both came to us and did not forsake the Father. He both took flesh in the womb and continued to govern the universe. Our human nature, united with the divinity of the Son, was on the throne of glory. All Augustine is saying is that Jesus didn't cease being God when he went up to he- or when he came down to earth, and he doesn't cease being human when he went up to heaven. And so what this means for us is that the ascension matters, that it matters deeply to how we relate to God. Julie Canlis, who's one of the theologians in our diocese, wrote in her book, she has a whole book on Calvin and the Ascension um, and our own ascent. But she writes, ascent is neither the lone journey of Jesus nor an abstracted elevation of the soul, but is the future for an embodied humanity that is co-present with Jesus and the Father. Now again, what this means is that we as humans have a place for all eternity from here on out with God that we have a very real, not just a spiritual place, but a physical place. And that God and Jesus, through Jesus, is redeeming this physical world. Jesus, along with his humanity, is present with the Trinity. And because of that, we can be united with God. So the second important piece of, the theologic, of our understanding of the theology of the ascension is that Jesus is now enthroned at God's right hand. We sung about this, we've heard about this from Ephesians. And this is what Paul wants us to know in Ephesians 1. He wants us to know that the mighty works of God, or he wants us to know the mighty works of God, that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is from Ephesians 1. Far above the all rule and authority and power and dominion, And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come. And that he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What this just means is that Jesus's enthronement at the ascension ascension, has given him power over all things. And that he is in the process actively working to restore them. Again, we can look back at our, our church history to John Chrysostom, who comments on, on his sermon on Ephesians. He says, God set him above so as to be honored before the rest, not merely to distinguish him, but to make all things his servants. Truly, this is an awesome reality that the whole power of creation should finally bow before a man in whom God the word dwells. For it's possible for someone to be on high without subjects, but held in particular honor. Here, however, it is not so. 
He has put all things under his feet, and he has not only subjected them, but imposed the most extreme subjection, below which there is no other. Again, what this just means is that Jesus, the risen and ascended Jesus, has all power and authority over all the universe for all time. At the ascension, Jesus is enthroned as king of all creation and reigns as ultimate power over all things. So this is our second piece of theology of the ascension. And our third is that Jesus completes his work as high priest when he ascends to heaven. When Jesus ascends to heaven, it completes his work as both priest and sacrifice for our sake. And the author of the book of Hebrews uh, states this well. He says, every priest, this is in Hebrews 10, every priest stands stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from, time, from the tat time until his enemies should be made a footstool under his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus's work of ascending to heaven completes the sacrifice that he offered for us. It completes the resurrection and the redemption and the destruction of the power of death for all those who are in Christ. And lastly, with the ascension, we get the release of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit comes because Jesus has ascended. And we'll be diving more into the Holy Spirit next week as we celebrate Pentecost. But it's important to remember that Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John that the Holy Spirit is given after he goes to the Father as a comforter and as a guide. That the Spirit's place in our lives as believers today is as a comforter in those times of sorrow and as a guide. And these four theological aspects of the ascension that Jesus is, brings humanity to heaven, that the enthronement, Jesus is enthroned as king, that he's completed the, the work as high priest and his giving of the Holy Spirit provide for us a context for understanding how we live into the complicated world that we live in every day. So the first thing that this means for us is that Jesus is our representative. Augustine, uh, further on in his sermon on Ascension Day, he says the the ascension of Christ is our elevation. Hope for the body is also invited where the glory of the head precedes us. Let us exalt, dearly beloved, with worthy joy and be glad with holy thanksgiving. Today, we're not only established as possessors of paradise, but we have entered into the heights of heaven in Christ. Now, what he's saying here is that through Jesus's ascension that, and his humanity, that we partner with him, that we are part of him, And because of that, we can have joy no matter what our situation is. And we can be thankful in whatever place we find ourselves in. In Colossians, Paul puts it like this. He says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. And set your mind on things above, for you have been hidden in Christ with God. 
And when Christ appears, who is our glory, then you also will appear with him. We have a chance and we are represented in heaven. That all of those pains, those sorrows, we have a savior who is present in the midst of that. And so we can turn with those pains, with those joys, with the fullness of who we are, without fear of offending God, without fear of hiding, needing to hide things that we're feeling, that we can cry out with the full depth of the sorrow that we have to our Father because Christ has ascended. And the next meaning of the ascension is that Jesus is reigning and restoring everything. As king, Jesus has the power to bring all things right, that he is bringing things that were good back to their created goodness. And he is in the process and is working at doing that now as we speak. When we think about what Jesus is doing in heaven, this is a full part of his call or his place in the Trinity, that he is actively restoring creation to what it was meant to be through his power in the, his death and resurrection and ascension and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And again, when we look and we see the brokenness of our world, we see the hidden sins that are coming to light. We can be reminded that Jesus is actively restoring what is broken. Another meaning of the ascension is that Jesus is interceding for us with the Father. This idea of Jesus is just waiting to catch our prayers, well, it seems kind of trite. There is some truth in it, right? That Jesus is our priest who is bringing our sins, our petitions, our sorrows, our joys to the Father. That he actually brings those to the Godhead. And that he brings them not just uh, as a spiritual disembodied being, but he brings them as a human as someone who is fully human and fully divine, that he's bringing our fully human pains to God. And he brings them with his gentleness and with his comfort and with his care that only he can have. Then another meaning of the ascension is that Jesus trusts the Holy Spirit to do his work here on earth. Think about that. Jesus trusts the Holy Spirit, the spirit that lives in me, the spirit that lives in you to do his work here on earth. And so we can have confidence that God's spirit is active and working in our own lives, that he's active and working in the world that we live in, and that he's active and working in our relationships in those conversations. If Jesus trusts the spirit, then we probably should too. And so in that moment, when you're stressed about what's going on in the world, whether that's outside in our culture or in the world largely, or what's going on in your own world through mental health issues or medical issues, let's lean into the spirit and ask God's spirit, how can we trust you in the work you're doing? And submit ourselves to what God is doing in the midst of that. It doesn't remove the pain. It doesn't make it right but it does provide that ministering comfort, comfort that only God's spirit can bring. And lean on your church body in the midst of that, that the church body is often a place that also carries the spirit to God's people. And so we are here as a body gathered, as people who are bearing God's spirit, 
with one another and for the sake of one another. And so take advantage of that if you are struggling. And as we try to keep one eye on the ascension and we have one eye in our complicated and painful world, there are a few implications that we can turn to from this. So we looked at the theology and we looked at the meaning and now some boots on the ground, practical implications for us. First, we can weep deeply for the brokenness of our world because we have a high priest who identifies with us. We can weep deeply and that weeping and that depth is good and right because this is not how things are supposed to be. And we can rejoice fully because all things are being made right in spite of what it may seem like today. And we can seek justice in our world today without fear because our identity is rooted in Christ, not in our nation's success or political parties or personal rights or gendered identities. Our identity is rooted in Christ. And we can have confidence in the ascended Jesus who sees and responds to our pain, even while we're experiencing it. One of the few images we get of Jesus in heaven outside of the book of Revelation is in the book of Acts in chapter seven. And if you know Acts well, I've spent way too much time in the book of Acts. Um, you know the image, this is the story of the stoning of Stephen. And so Stephen has proclaimed the gospel. He's proclaimed Jesus's redemption and he's rubbed uh, some Jewish leaders the wrong way. And so he is getting stoned. And the image we get, what Stephen says is, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. That in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his deepest pain, he sees Jesus standing. And I want to read this part of the passage because I think it's so instructive to us when we're dealing with similar kinds of pain. He says, full of the Holy Spirit, this is Acts 7, 55, Stephen gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then he says out loud, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at God's right hand. And then they cried out the crowd and they start stoning him. And as they were stoning Stephen, he calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he asked the Lord to forgive them, to forgive their sins and not hold them against him. This image of Jesus standing, of him turning and presenting himself to us in our deepest suffering is something that we can grasp onto in those moments of pain. That's something about Jesus' response. We, all we know is that Stephen saw Jesus standing, right? But then the next thing we see is Stephen's heart turns towards his accusers, turns towards the people who are persecuting him. And when we see the standing Jesus, we see the fullness of what he sees. We see his comforting hands reaching out to us as well. And we can lean into that. And as we lean into that, we begin to see his perspective. Jesus is standing and present with Stephen in a way that gives him peace, even as he's being murdered. And Jesus is present with us in that same way. 
And so in a, just in a minute, when we stand to proclaim our faith, when we stand and we say that Jesus is ascended and he is risen, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, that he's going to be coming to judge the living and the dead, we are proclaiming these truths. We are proclaiming that humanity is now in heaven. We are proclaiming that Jesus is king and in control. We're proclaiming that he is with us and he is comforting us. And we're proclaiming that his spirit is among his people. Thanks be to God. <laughs>